0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV.
1: Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Meaning of Life TV. Uh, I'm your host, R.J. Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Lauren Shields. Uh, Lauren, could you introduce yourself?
0: Hi there. My name is uh, Lauren Shields. I'm the author of The Beauty Suit, How My Year of Religious Modesty Made Me a Better Feminist.
1: And there it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm holding it up um, to the camera right now. It's a It's a... People can see the uh, the cover. I, I like that. I like this cover a lot. Uh, <laughs> they, did, they did a good job with it.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I, I was very very excited about the cover when I saw it.
1: Um, so thanks so much for coming on today. Um, so we're gonna be talking about your um book, which came out this year, uh, the beauty mm-hmm. suit. Uh, so let's just start off with what what is the beauty suit?
0: Okay, so the beauty suit is um the phrase that I came up with to describe the way that women are expected to, um, perform femininity and perform beauty. Um, it has to do with race. Um, it, you generally it's, it's kind of white focused. It has to do with weight. You have to be under a certain weight. Um, it has to do with youth. You have to be under a certain age, but it, uh, the beauty suit is comprised of things like, uh, makeup, uh, done hair, uh, tight clothes, high heels. Um, basically the, the ways that women, um, have to put a lot of effort into our appearance or feel like we have to put a lot of effort into our appearance just to leave the house essentially.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you say you've defined this term and refer to it through the book. Um, mm-hmm. but kind of the origin of the book lies in what you call the experiment, uh, which you, yeah. which you capitalize throughout the book. Um uh-huh. so can you explain uh what is the experiment and how it how it got started?
0: Yeah, so um so I called it the modesty experiment. Um and uh when I was in my first year of seminary, um which is like grad school for theology. Some people hear seminary and they go, "Oh, you're a nun." I'm not a nun. I'm also not a priest. Obviously, I'm not allowed to be a priest because I'm a woman. Um but anyway, I was in my first year of seminary and uh I was in a class with a woman who came in to talk about Islam. And the the hijab the headscarf that many Muslim women wear and as a as a young white feminist I was ready to have the discussion about how terrible Islam is and how oppressive it is to make women cover their hair and oh, it's such a terrible thing and instead she came in and said actually uh, it's not necessarily oppressive to cover your hair if you choose to do it and most um, American Muslim women choose to cover for feminist reasons. And that really blew my mind. And so um, I went back to this couch that was outside my classroom after class, and uh, I was reading about these women who chose to cover, and they were super empowered, and they did it, they, they covered as a way to say my appearance is not who I am. Um, and I kind of looked down at my own body, and I was in this skirt that pinched my waist, and I was in all this perfect makeup and awesome hair, you know, products and everything else. And I thought, you know, I thought that covered women were oppressed, and I judged them so harshly, but am I any less oppressed for feeling like I have to do all of this stuff just to be acceptable in public? So I designed the modesty experiment where I covered my hair, my arms, and my legs, and I stopped wearing makeup and nail polish, and I did that for nine months. So that's that's what the modesty experiment was for me.
1: So how... Was it just the, the idea popped into your head that you wanted to, like, do – it's almost like participatory journalism or remi- reminds me a little bit of, like, Super Size Me or people, you know, kind of doing yeah. an experiment on themselves to see what, what happens. How did yeah. how did you decide to, like, fully – not just think about this idea but, like, fully live it? Um,
0: it was – honestly, it was that one aha moment on the couch. It's It's always really nice when we have an aha moment that really pushes us. Usually aha moments are more diffuse, but mine was just – It it sort of pointed out my own hypocrisy. And when I asked myself, could I wear, could I not wear makeup internally? No, no, no. Like I freaked out. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm so into being liberated. I'm so into being a feminist, but I can't even face not wearing makeup for a week. What does that say? And so, yeah, I did, I did decide to do participatory journalism because um, my body and my appearance are something that I had to, um, to play with and to experiment with. And it turned out to be the best way that I knew how to get out from underneath um, what I suddenly knew was a really oppressive standard that I was setting for
1: myself. Mm-hmm. So the, the book is an interesting combination of a memoir of your life and things that happened to you before you started this experiment and during mm-hmm. it. And, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. then like sociological analysis, uh, a lot more theology than I was expecting when I, <laughs> when I read the book, yeah. wh- which was interesting because yeah. I learned a lot from that and yes. some anthropological kind of information. So it's a really interesting like combination of, of, of different genres. Um, but, and the first chapter is kind of like before, you know, your life before <laughs> seminary mm-hmm. and, and Having the idea of, of dressing modestly, can you talk a little bit about that time in your life and like how looking back on it, you were living in in the beauty suit?
0: Yeah, sure. So I, I talk in the first chapter a lot about the time that I spent working in New York City. Um, I was trying to get into the film industry, um, and I worked on Fifth Avenue at a corporate ethics company. So basically, it was just a it was just a paying the bills kind of a job um but every day you know going to work on 5th Avenue you you see women who are impeccably dressed and they just look awesome all day every day and uh i felt like i had to do the same thing um both because i was on 5th Avenue and because i was in a professional setting um but i remember every time i had to put on this you know i had to blow dry my hair and put on a suit and a heels and for some reason nobody was wearing sneakers on the subway which i was like wait what what happened to that i thought we were doing sneakers until we got to the office <laughs> Um, I guess I guess we stopped doing that. Um, but I always felt like I was kind of an imposter. But at the same time, um, sort of deep in my bones, um, even when I wasn't wearing the corporate suit, um, I staked a lot of my relevance on my ability to wear the beauty suit well. Um, sort of deep in my gut, I believed that um people listened to me because of my age and because I fit certain weight requirements and because I wore this sort of availability costume um i'm not saying that i went around you know dressed in midriff shirts or anything else but just you know the the ability to wear the beauty suit really well um is kind of a substitute for power for a lot of women and that's not a coincidence um, that is, that is one of the way that, one of the ways that patriarchy sort of rears its ugly head is, you know, you can feel powerful by making people look at you, which feels like power, um, until you can no longer make people look at you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I, I didn't before, yeah, before, before I wrote the book, I was, I spent a lot of time in cities. I grew up in Chicago. Um, and I just, I, I never left the house uh, without makeup ever, 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 ever. Um, I very rarely left the house with my head covered. If my head was uncovered, my hair was done. Um, meaning, you know, blown out or straightened or, or curled or whatever. For a while, I had a pixie cut, um, that actually takes a lot of maintenance. Um, so I just, I really, it, the beauty suit was a huge part of both my identity and my personal armor.
1: hmm Um, and you describe some kind of unsettling jobs that you either had very briefly or applied for. Yes. Uh, uh, do you want to talk about that briefly? Um, sure. As just like part of your experience before this like other part of your life started?
0: Totally. So I was working in this office up until 2008 when the recession hit and I was laid off. <laughs> and because I'm a very proud person, I didn't want to leave New York City. So I first I applied for housekeeping jobs and I applied for waitressing jobs And then I started looking on Craigslist for things that would give me more money more quickly. Um, One of the jobs that I worked was as a, quote, foot model, meaning um, I got paid to let men massage my feet. Um, And they constantly pushed me. um, And actually, I actually only did it one time because it was so, it felt weird for me. It doesn't feel weird for all women, but it felt weird for me um, because these men kept pushing me to perform sexual acts with my feet and that was not what I was, you know, you can rub my feet, but I'm not going to rub you with my feet, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, what those kinds of jobs taught me was that um, it, my internal narrative was, well, this is empowerment. You're using your body to make money, which is what feminism is all about, is paying your own bills and using your sex appeal to take care of yourself. But what those jobs taught me is that that may be empowering for some women, but it is not empowering for me. And it slowly eroded my it, it slowly eroded my dignity. Again, that's not to say that sex work is bad or that it erodes everyone's dignity, but it brought me to the limit of the possibility of being sexy as my sole method of empowerment.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so then, there's kind of a jump, at least tonally, and I guess in time, um, really? from you having these living in New York and having these type of jobs to uh, being in seminary at, at Emory. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, so how did you, how did you decide to leave the life you are working <laughs> living in, in New York and pursue uh, a very different life?
0: Yeah. Well, um, even before I was laid off from my corporate ethics job, I knew that film was not the right, um, field for me. Uh, the reason being that in 2008, uh, the Me Too movement did not exist. Um, and I experienced in the film industry daily harassment. Um, and that's a really common experience for women in film. Um, and you have a choice. You can either sort of play along and pretend that it doesn't bother you, or you can speak up. And neither one of those choices were things that I thought were sustainable for me because I knew that I was going to have to tolerate this for a good 10, 15 years before I was in a position where I could say, all right, dude, stop commenting on my butt. No, you cannot offer drinks with just me. We're not doing that. It was going to be a long time. Um, and so, uh, I had always been interested in religious studies, specifically, um, how the church in particular, um, can produce such wonderful, loving people and such church at the same time. (laughs) Um, it seemed like, it seemed like organized religion, um, really made some people the best versions of themselves and was used as, a, as an excuse to hurt people by others. Um, and when I was in New York City, I reconnected with a pastor friend of mine after I had decided that film was not the right place for me. And I asked him all these questions. I was like, well, you're, you're really educated, but you're a pastor. How can, you, how can you be religious and think that science is nonsense? And he said, well, actually, not all religious people think that. And I said, well, why do you hate gay people? And he said, I don't hate gay people. (laughs) Um, so I was, I was sort of painting everyone, uh, with the same brush when the reality is that there's a huge spectrum of belief even within the church. Um, so I decided to go to seminary after doing a nine month stint as a hospital chaplain in Tampa, which is where my family is. Uh, and I had to go back after, after I lost my job because I couldn't stay in New York City without doing those foot fetish jobs. Mm -hmm. Um. And so, uh, yeah, I just, I did nine months as a hospital chaplain and it just, it absolutely blew my mind. And I went, oh my gosh, I do not, I do not have to be, uh, bigoted or oppressed or repressed in order to be a religious person. I can, I can be all of myself and still, um, still belong in organized religion. So that's, that's how I decided. It's a pretty big leap. I I admit it's a pretty big leap. Um, Mm -hmm. but it, it did make sense. And it took me about three years to get there.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, did you have a religious uh, childhood?
0: Uh, somewhat. I grew up in the Midwest. Um, and the Midwest is, um, there's a lot of, uh, the United Church of Christ is big out there. Um, and so when I was growing up, my dad took us to church for holidays usually, but he was really into, um, different, he, he impressed upon us that different religious paths all had something to offer. Um, and then for a couple of years, he dated a woman, um, who was very involved in her church and so we spent a lot of time uh, in, you know, community theater and at this church and at church camps and stuff. And the the level of compassion and kindness that I experienced with these folks just blew my mind. And I never forgot um, the kinds of people that I met there. So on the one hand, yeah, I do. I did have sort of a religious upbringing, at least for a couple of years. Um, it was a very progressive church to this day. It's not affiliated with a particular denomination. Um but on the other hand, um, my my dad, my parents divorced when I was five, and my dad had custody of us during the week, and my mom had us on weekends. My dad was like, you know, you you got to remember that every every path has merit. Every path has something that can that it has to offer you. So
1: hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about kind of the first chapter where you look at one of the. Uh, abrahamic religions and that's uh mm-hmm. islam and yeah. so uh, a muslim woman who wore a hijab uh helped inspire uh this experiment and yeah. i think when probably when most people think of modest dress uh mm-hmm. for women they probably think of uh women wearing a hijab or something more elaborate than that in mm-hmm. either the u.s or a majority muslim country um yeah. and then you kind of give you show that there's alternate, that there's alternate readings to some of the key verses that, um, have inspired these understandings of, uh, you know, what God is- wants Muslims to do. And
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and
1: you talk about the way that people, that, uh, women, uh, react to these structures. Sometimes they find it uh, mm-hmm. constraining and sometimes they find it liberating. So can you talk more about, uh, Islam and uh, modest dress?
0: Yeah. So um, a disclaimer at the beginning, I am not Muslim. Um, all of the facts that I have come from reading Muslim scholars. Um, so what I found out during the research for this book is that the, the verses that are usually used, similar to Christianity, the verses that are usually used to tell women to cover up um, are actually pretty they're fairly ambiguous in terms of specifics. Um, uh, There's one verse that says something like uh, draw your women, draw your scarves over your bosoms in order to be, or or over your chest in order to be recognized as a decent woman, Um, which makes, made me pretty uncomfortable um, in terms of, because there's that, that equivalency between how you dress and how men treat you, um, which to my mind, men are responsible for their behavior. Full stop. Always. It doesn't matter what women are wearing, um, but that does appear in in uh, in, in uh, Islamic scriptures. Um, but the other verses, one is reinterpreted to uh, point to uh, the Prophet Muhammad's uh, privacy, his modest nature, his his humility, um, and so. Um, In in Islam, the the point that I make is that these scriptures have been interpreted by, um, the culture that surrounded them, which were, which up until this point has always been patriarchal. You know, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all come from highly patriarchal, androcentric cultures, and that influences how those scriptures are, uh, interpreted always. Um, so, uh. Yeah, I don't know, I, they just, it, I, without getting too much into specifics, because I'd have to have the text in front of me and mm-hmm. I don't right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the, this, this, the scriptures are pretty pretty open to interpretation. And at no point do they say, women cover your hair, women wear a burqa, women make sure that the curves of your body are completely invisible to men. Um, And what's really interesting, what I found in my research for this book is that across the world, no matter what women are wearing, women are always blamed for bad behavior by men. Mm -hmm. Um, She showed me her ankle. That's why I raped her. She showed me her tummy. That's why I raped her. She was walking funny. That's why I pulled her skirt off. And it's the same all over the world, which means it's not about clothes. It's not about what we're wearing. So. Sorry, I went off on a, on a tangent a little bit there, but I feel very strongly about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you, you point out, you know, you, when you kind of do a, a survey of other countries and other cultures, mm-hmm. uh, that women in India, if they're wearing traditional dress, often have their uh, midriff exposed, um, yeah. which in America would be kind of shocking, but there is considered normal. But then I guess like showing showing your legs, uh, a woman showing her legs is considered offensive in exactly. traditional very culture
0: in India. Yeah. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any thoughts on why um, Islam is, you know, so you point out that there's in the three Abrahamic faiths, there are, all of them have some kind of idea that women should like be modest and cover themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any idea, any thoughts on why Islam is the religion where this has persisted among like regular people most uh, strongly as opposed to just like people like nuns or, or something like that?
0: mm mm-hmm. Well, um, so modesty has persisted in all three Abrahamic traditions. Um, there are well you know this, you read the book, there's there are uh uh Jewish women who adhere to Tsniuth with the which is uh Jewish modesty. Um I was inspired by women who adhered to that in New York City. I would see them walking around in Brooklyn and they looked super cute, but they were covered. Um uh, same thing with Christianity. There are, the, the Church of Latter-day Saints is big on female modesty. Mm-hmm. Um, the Amish, obviously, are very big on female modesty. Um, so I, I don't know if it's fair to say that Islam is the only one where modesty has persisted.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So why don't, yeah, why don't we talk to talk about um, Christianity? Um, mm-hmm. So you, kind of, you talk about both kind of the traditional, like the, the traditional clothing that a religious a uh, woman would wear, um, you, you know, a, a nun or a prioress or something. And uh-huh, yeah. then also the kind of, you know, the subcultures, uh, that continue to, um, have modesty as part of their dress, like, like the Amish. Yeah. Um, uh-huh, yeah. and you, you point out the biblical verses that are involved in this one. I was not familiar with at all that says that women shouldn't braid their hair. Yeah, um, I never even heard that before. I'm not. I'm, i I'm Jewish myself, <laughs> so I, I, my my New Testament <laughs> knowledge is is weak. But um, <laughs> yeah, so how do you how does how does the Christian uh, version of this play out?
0: Yeah, so the Christian version. First of all, it's worth saying that Jesus almost never talked about sex. He talked about money a lot, a lot, but he never said. Um, women cover your bosoms, women cover your hair. What he said was men, if you look at a woman with lust in your eye, pluck out your eye. Uh, and for some reason that's never quoted. Um, <laughs> uh, I wonder why.
1: <laughs> rarely enforced or performed. I, I would assume. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, But uh, but Paul, the disciple Paul, who um, apostle, excuse me, apostle. He was not a disciple; was apostle. He was the one who wrote about um, not braiding your hair, not uh, women not adorning themselves. Um, He also uh, wrote the verse, and I think it's Corinthians about uh, women should cover their head when they prophesy, um, meaning women should cover their head when they pray. Um, A lot of a, a lot of Catholic women still do this. Um, it's practiced in Italy quite a bit. Um, so, uh, but in the, in the Christian tradition so far, it's been interpreted, uh, disproportionately against women to cover yourselves basically so that men don't think about sex when they look at you. Um, and, but the way I reinterpret it and the way it's, it's really easy to reinterpret it as is, um, don't engage in conspicuous consumption. Don't, um, Don't over, don't, don't wear a bunch of gold and silver. Don't spend a ton of time doing your hair. Don't, you know, just don't, don't be conspicuously wealthy because that's not, that's not what God wants from you. And that's, that's not what followers of Jesus do. Um, That said, Paul, I mean, so that that's another way to interpret the modesty, um, modesty guidelines. um, And that would apply to both men and women. Um, But, uh, for me the the argument is kind of weird because Paul himself had a very strong conversion experience but the dude never met Jesus <laughs> He's not Jesus he's a guy who is following Jesus as closely and as ardently as he possibly can um, he was a guy who wrote a lot but he's he's a man in his in his cultural situation in which He's writing from his cultural limitations, as was Jesus, also. But um, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I sort of forgot where I was going with answering your question. Is there <laughs> is there anything?
1: Uh, no, I mean I've heard you know. Um, there's a uh, our understanding that uh, you know Jesus uh, preached, and then okay. his, his you know disciples handed down his wisdom that was eventually written down, and then decades later paul kind of like codify, oh, yeah. codified it into a religion that one could live in the way that like uh the the jewish sages like codified the the rules of exactly. you know the rules to for every every day life
0: yeah exactly exactly
1: um so let's talk a little bit about um uh, the amish um which you explore in their lifestyle and i guess what's what's striking about them is that you know they uh, you know, everyone knows they reject the modern world in most ways and most, mm-hmm. most modern technology and, uh, some, you know, they don't have zippers on their clothing, I think at least, <laughs> and so, you know, things like this. Yeah. So it's, it's different from the way, uh, the, like, uh, traditional Muslim would observe their, uh, you know, the rules of, the, of their faith, um, mm-hmm. where it's it, usually, they'll accept, accept modernity instead of reject it and, Kind of the, you know the 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 women in America who dress very or are Christian and dress very very traditionally and cover their heads also have this whole other uh-huh. like withdrawal from from contemporary society and in, in most ways I've seen yes. Amish people play Amish girls playing a uh, volleyball um, at a uh, at a yeah. kind of a community event I went to once but um so uh-huh. they don't you know they don't reject everything but mostly they're withdrawing from from modern society. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, how, yeah, do you see do any difference there with um, people who have this just like radically different lifestyle?
0: Um, any difference uh, versus like
1: a, 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 a American Muslim who dresses one way but engages in all the other things that a an American um, oh, Christian? Yeah,
0: was. yeah. So, so uh, a modestly dressed Muslim, let's say uh, an American Muslim woman who wears a hijab, she doesn't like you said, she doesn't disengage from popular culture. Um, that, that's not, or she might a little bit, but that's not one of her uh, reasons for dressing differently than main, mainstream America. Um, she, she covers her hair. A lot of, a lot of them cover their hair again for feminist reasons, but also because they want to be visibly Muslim. They want to be recognized as faithful women um, for Amish folks uh their their big sort of edict is anything that comes from uh, the outside world, anything that comes from non-Amish culture is to be viewed with suspicion. Um, so they take every single thing from uh, the surrounding culture and examine whether or not they want to accept it. Um, that means that, I didn't know this, that it's not that Amish people dress in um, what they wore in the 1700s, they dress in partially what they wore in the 1700s, but also what they wore in the 1800s and the 1900s. They take individual elements of dress and adopt them or not based on what their particular community feels, whether they feel that item of dress um, aligns with their beliefs. And different Amish communities, if, if you've seen them in events, you know that different Amish communities um, all dress uh, differently from the mainstream, but they all dress differently from each other as well. Um, some of them will wear those transparent bonnets. Others think that you, you should absolutely should not wear those. Um, so I think that the difference between a covered Muslim and an Amish person is that a covered Muslim um, strives to move within the mainstream culture while covered, whereas an Amish person is like, I have no interest in mainstream culture
1: whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Orthodox uh, Judaism. Um, which is the Abrahamic faith that I'm most familiar with of the three. Um, (laughs) so yeah, so this, that, and you combine the chapter with this with, um, talking about technology as well, which is interesting. Maybe we can talk about that also. Um, so I have, um, some, some of my uh, first cousins, uh, who live in Israel, um, have, were raised secular, but, um. Became ultra orthodox and, uh, one of them in particular probably dress, dresses today very, very similar to the way you dressed in the modesty experiment of long skirts and sleeves to the wrist and like a head wrap, you know, covering her, covering her yeah. hair. Um, yeah. and I don't know that the, the well, what are your thoughts on the place of dress in, um, in, uh, among very religious Jewish people, Jewish women?
0: Um, I, I don't, I don't think I can, I can comment on the, um, whether or not they should be dressing that way. Is that, is that what you're asking?
1: No, just like, how does it, how does it, I mean, what differences do you see in some of the other faiths that you cover or how do you, do you think it's mm-hmm. unique in one way? I mean, one, one thing that is different is that some ultra Orthodox women wear wigs instead mm-hmm. of, you know, a, uh, traditional head covering. And yeah. the wig might be like a very close approximation of what their actual hair looks like. So right. it's, it's, it's a right. weird, there's a, it's stranger than, than just wearing yeah. a head wrap.
0: Yeah. I, it's amazing how often people comment about that because it's like, okay, well, if you're covering your hair because your hair is erva, meaning it's an erotic stimulus, but then you're putting a different erva on top of your head. How is that? how is that really modest? Um, that discussion is different in every community. Um, there are many modest Jewish women, especially in New York city who say, well, I wear a wig, but there's, if you wear a really crappy wig, then that's not, um, that's not looking your best, which is actually also part of modest dress is you're supposed to uh, for Jewish women is you're supposed to dress in a way that lets your inner light shine. So the, the object is not to look unattractive or frumpy. The object is to look polished, but with a very strong boundary between yourself and the outside world. There's a big emphasis on privacy among uh, modest Jewish women, which is why I tie it to technology. Um, the, it seems like the point of social media is to blast away all the barriers between oneself and literally everyone else. Um, So it's the wig thing is it, it it differs from community to community. Some, some women um, have really, really nice wigs and they are talked about by their own communities because their wigs are too nice. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's very, very complicated. Um, But the reason that they wear uh, a wig and not a headscarf is that their interpretation is that their actual hair is what is really arousing for men and that that should only be reserved for their husbands um Jewish women who have observed youth generally um cover after only after marriage so you can tell a married woman because her hair is covered and an unmarried woman because her hair is uncovered um and again that has to do with uh only my husband gets to see my head only my husband gets to see my hair um so it's it's very it's very interesting and in keeping with the oldest abrahamic tradition it is also the most variably interpreted because they've had, you know, 8,000 years to, <laughs> to engage with that as opposed to 2,000 for Christians or 1,500 for Muslims.
1: Yeah, my kind of lay Jewish person understanding, and, you know, I was raised in conservative Judaism, which is kind of like the middle ground in America between uh-huh. Reform and Orthodox, um, was that, you know, like, there, Judaism is like a lot of rules, but then the rabbis also have figured out, like, the exception to the rule. So like, there's a rule of, there's all these rules, I think there's like 36 maybe of things you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. Um, but then there are all these exceptions and then people figured out that it'd be okay if you pay a non-Jewish person to do some of this stuff (laughs) for you, uh, on the weekends. That's called a Sabbath goy. I I probably, I don't know if it really Uh exists anymore. Um, but it existed at one point. And yeah, so then, so people were like, okay, can't, (laughs) we can't display our hair to men in public. But wait, if we put this other thing on, it's not really our hair. So right. it's like a legal, yeah. uh, you know, like Judaism has like a long legalistic tra- tradition. So I kind of see it as oh, like, yeah. here's the, you know, here's the loophole and we'll like go on living our lives, you know, through, yeah. through the loophole.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I have a Jewish friend who likes to tell me that if you ask five rabbis for an opinion, you get six opinions. Right. So, you know, <laughs> yeah.
1: Um. Okay. So let's talk about technology and social media and... Mm how that has changed, you know, really just in like the last 10 years or so, because so many of these things are, are new, um, how that has changed how women, uh, are pressured to present themselves.
0: Yeah. So before social media, women, um, self objectified as a method of empowerment, meaning they wore the beauty suit, um, as a way to feel visible. Um, it encourages women to think of ourselves as objects with the advent of social media and the Internet in general, um, we are encouraged to see ourselves, men and women, but especially women because the phenomenon already existed when social media showed up. Um, we're even more encouraged to see ourselves almost as brands. Um, we, have, we can take pictures of ourselves um, that are very curated. We can make sure that, like the way that you look at yourself in the mirror where you kind of suck in your tummy and there's a certain angle and you're like, yeah, I look good. Now you can do that in front of everybody, and you're expected to. Um, There are filters where you can make your skin clearer or make it look like you're wearing makeup. And so seeing yourself on a screen naturally makes you see yourself as a thing. And the better you are on social media at seeing yourself as a thing, both with photography and with whatever you say online, um, the more sort of social currency you have so social media has kind of punched the gas on this idea that you can that as a woman your worth lies in your um, objecthood to other people so
1: yeah and um, it uh, you know there's <laughs> there's some positive effects from social media but it's, it's starting to seem like more more the negative outweighs the Isn't it? it?
0: It was fun, and now it's kind of a nightmare.
1: <laughs> so we won't, we won't talk about the president. But um, just like, you know, you, so there's all these apps that let you manipulate, like, in a Photoshop-like way, but very simply manipulate a, a selfie that you just took. And um, there was an article in The New Yorker within last year or so about how these are really, really popular, in, in China especially. And it's mm-hmm. just like... You know, you just, like, don't post a selfie that hasn't been, like, highly edited by one of these apps that can change how your face looks and make it, you know, conform to, the like, the beauty stereotypes of Chinese culture. Um, yeah. And then there's also just, like, the... Always, yeah. It's like the all. You're always on. You're always like expected to be doing something, and you're. If, right. You know, some there are people who we all have friends who are like everything they do. They post to Facebook. Every event they go to, they post, yes. and then uh, you know other people get tagged in it, and you feel pressure to be like, yes. to, to be like, like,
0: I don't want to participate.
1: Oh. Yeah, to be <laughs> yeah. you know memorialized for for posterity. Um, yeah, I, yeah, and, it, and it, it it seems like this is much harsher on, on women for, than than men.
0: It is. I, I would say, I mean, I'm, I have never been a man, so I don't know, but it, it kind of is. And you, you start to see your own life as a product for consumption. You, you'll be out in the park walking and be like, I should Instagram this. Should you? Or can you just like enjoy the moment? And, but it's really hard to resist that urge because when other people like our photos and when other people pay attention to us, we get a dopamine hit.
1: Mm-hmm. Like it
0: feels good to have attention and it's really hard to control that desire to want to be seen as beautiful, not only by the people who know us, but by total strangers.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It's fun, but it's, but it's soul sucking really quickly. And it, and it, it, uh, it, it it demolishes our self concept, uh, as someone who exists when people are not looking at us,
1: you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so related to like the selfie is something I've been wondering about for a while, but haven't (laughs) expressed for fear that someone would say I'm, Offending, offending people, but I'll just say, I'll just say it here now. So it seems like the makeup trends of the past couple of years Mm -hmm. are, are kind of like, uh, made for the selfie and not the real world. And Mm -hmm. there's there's been like this explosion of, uh, and like Kim Kardashian, you talk about in the book has led it in some ways, uh, explosion of, uh, like beauty bloggers and YouTube, uh, people who, only, uh, you know, who do makeup. And so, some of these are um, young men in addition to young women. Um, mm-hmm. And, and yeah, so you, it's like, and sometimes I, I see these things like retweeted onto my timeline of like these like rainbow like eyeshadow concoctions that must have taken like hours and hours. And like no one would have done this just for like themselves and walking around that day. Like you would only mm-hmm. like put so much effort into your eyeshadow <laughs> if you were going to take a photo of it and then post it to Instagram and hope it went viral or whatever. So yeah, it just seems like, I don't know if any, if this is, this probably is not an original thought, but like the social media <laughs> and selfies have like created this environment in which like a really exaggerated makeup on women mostly um, is, is become really popular. But then if, when I see someone out in the world who has like this really exaggerated makeup on, it's kind of like, you know, too, <laughs> it's, it's too much. Exactly. Maybe it would look good on Instagram, but, but not in real life. And it's like, you know, we're living more in social media than in the real world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think that's offensive. Um, I, (laughs) I have noticed, I've noticed something like that too. Now I should say before I talk about that, that, um, before I did the modesty experiment and even today, um, when I'm having a crappy day, getting really made up kind of gives me a boost. Mm -hmm. Um, being able to look in the mirror and be like, yeah, all right. Okay. I can wear the suit. All right. I'm good. Um, but at the same time, like, um, I've noticed it too, where, uh contouring is a thing um which looks really nice when you take a picture but the many times that I have attempted to learn how to contour, as soon as I leave the house and I see myself in the sunlight, I'm like,
1: whoa,
0: <laughs> I'm wearing a lot of makeup. And can it's you, can really you define
1: contouring? Because I don't think I yeah. totally understand it. And probably some of our viewers and listeners don't understand that's it either.
0: So, okay, that's so funny because contouring is a, is a really – now it's a really basic thing in makeup. But it's it's funny to me that, um, that a lot of people don't even know what it is. So contouring is – you take a a shade of brown generally that is a little bit darker than your skin tone and you put it in the, um, like you put it underneath your cheekbones. Um, you put it at your temples, basically contouring is, uh, oh, and then, and then there are lighter colors or highlights that you put on top of your cheekbones, on your nose, on your brow bones, on your chin. So contouring is a way to make your face look more defined by painting it more essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and the object is to blend it so that it looks, Fairly natural, um, on Instagram. Um, <laughs> but again, Kim Kardashian and the, the whole Kardashian Empire have led this charge. There are now contour palettes with three or four different colors, where you use this color here and this color here and this color here and this color here, and, color here, and you're just you're it's it's supposed to be a subtle way of enhancing your features. Um, but it's a ton of makeup. It is a ton of makeup. Um, and that really plays well into, um, this, the idea of female beauty is empowerment and its connection to capitalism. There's a reason that makeup companies and hair companies and shoe companies have tapped into feminist rhetoric in order to sell us empowerment. I mean, all of this new makeup that we're supposed to be wearing, false eyelashes that we wear every day, um, uh, contoured brows, like, I don't know if you've noticed, but like, eyebrows have become a mm-hmm. really, they're a thing. Right. Even five, six years ago, they were not a thing. Who benefits? Cosmetics companies. They make a ton of money. A ton of money. The more stuff they can sell us, the happier they are. So selfie culture has, it's not an accident that it's really blossomed. its It has to do with feeling looked at and feeling good. But, man, if it doesn't feed the machine, it, <laughs> The, the amount of products that women are are expected to have on our faces is astronomical at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah. You don't have to be like a Marxist to see that. The the makeup company no, wants you hard. to buy four colors instead of one color <laughs> because they get to you sell you four a things. You
0: dollars color palette. Do you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. If you want
0: to be wrong? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if, if, I mean, it seems like this, you know, when people make movies about our era, if they are still doing such things 50 years from now, you know, this kind of, Extreme makeup is going to be like the signifier that like big hair is for the if you're setting a movie in the 80s or something.
0: Oh, yeah. Gosh, maybe, maybe. And you know what's interesting too is that um, a lot of supposedly a lot of men can't tell the difference between uh, a natural face and makeup that is contrived to look natural. But women know it when we see it immediately. She's got contour, she's got nude eyeshadow, she's got lip plumper, she's got blah, 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 blah. But it's really interesting that. The natural look is actually one of the most expensive and time-consuming suits that you can wear. So,
1: yeah, yeah. The, there was a um, there was an Amy Schumer skit about this from a couple of years ago of yes, you know that I one with the with the, with the boy band singing about how she's so beautiful she doesn't need makeup and they're like oh that's yes. what you look like without makeup no put yeah, some no, more thank you. on yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah I remember that and I, I remember feeling so validated when I saw that I was like oh it's not just me okay all right great yeah.
1: Um, so a related question I have is about, um, skincare, mm-hmm. uh, which seems to have kind of blossomed just in the past couple of years as like a new, a new, extru- a new thing that women can do in like a very <laughs> focused and intense way uh, uh. In that men are like. I guess probably the, the companies, the skincare companies, would like men to start buying this stuff as well, but uh, it's it's really like a female focused thing now. Um, yeah, I see. And then there, there's been somewhat of a backlash to it. Uh, there was an article in the outline um, that we'll link to that came out like six months ago that was making the anti skincare case, saying like, you know humans existed for hundreds of thousands of years without putting these chemicals on our faces. And we were more or less fine. (laughs) And then there was a backlash for the backlash of women saying like, no, like I feel like this really helps me in my life. And okay. So so, do you have any thoughts on the, on the skincare trend?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I would have to do more research to know if skincare really is more of a trend now than it used to be. Um, I know that I, I am very familiar with the sense of panic that I have around Uh, aging, uh, skin dullness. Um, I recently, somebody told me recently that I have redness around here and it just blew my mind. I was like, oh, oh, I have to fix it. I have to fix it. (laughs) But I don't though. I mean, like you said, humans have been procreating for millennia without perfect skin, (laughs) you know, and without contour. Um, I think the reason that skincare um, is so easy to push on women and not men is again, women, are told again and again and again and again and again that our relevance is based on the way that we look. If we do not look a certain way, then we will not be listened to. Um, That looking a certain way is a prerequisite for being seen. Um, That has to do with aging. I know excuse me, a lot of my female friends who are over 50, and you, you can look this up on the Internet, too, they say that once you pass a certain age, people stop seeing you it's like you don't exist as a woman. That is terrifying. That means the last half of my life, no one is going to see me. So, or at least I'm going to feel like nobody sees me. So it's very easy to sell me skincare products that promise me that that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it works really well on women because, uh, you know, with, with any social movement, there's always a backlash. And as, as women are getting more empowered, the backlash is subtle, but it's there, which is, yeah, okay, you're empowered, but are you hot? Nobody cares if you're empowered, if you're fat, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, ask Roxanne Gay about that one. So,
1: um, so that, that reminds me of, um, being seen and not being seen. You, you talk a little bit about that, about that aspect of when you were doing the experiment of how people would treat you or See ignore me. you?
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, That's really interesting. So initially I was like, oh, my God, all my fears have been confirmed. I am secretly ugly. And the beauty suit is the only reason that I have any worth. But then as I as I got more comfortable and as I observed more, um, what I noticed is that a certain kind of person did not see me. The kind of people that always saw me before, which was sort of young, white, middle class bros. um, They didn't see me. Um, Men of color saw me. Um, they complimented me on my headscarf all the time. Whereas white guys were like, I don't know what's going on in your head. So I'm just not going to look at you. <laughs> <laughs> they really don't know what to do with me. Um, now the theory that I have is that the beauty suit is a kind of signifier that you're participating in popular culture. You're saying, yes, I am spending time, um, wearing what the dominant culture tells me I'm supposed to wear. So I want people who benefit from the dominant culture to pay attention to me. Um, so it's more of a it's it's more of a, a cultural signifier and an availability costume than it is um, a reflection of actual attractiveness. But yeah, the, the guys who usually saw me before didn't see me anymore because I wasn't I wasn't wearing the availability costume anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so, uh, do you have any thoughts on your book and cultural appropriation regarding fashion? Like you I think you mentioned it a little bit. You talk about um getting um dreadlocks at one or I did have dreads. After you end uh the experiment and then feeling something <laughs> feeling something about that. A lot of the cultural appropriation arguments center on dress and usually for women there was this social media blow up. I don't know if you caught this one from a couple months ago of a teenage girl somewhere in the middle of America who wore a traditional Chinese um Chi pow if I'm saying that word correctly, to her prom, yeah, the red
0: dress, po- right? Yeah, and posted
1: photos really? of it, and then she got like savaged from hundreds of people who were like cultural appropriator. <sighs> how dare you? When this is just some innocent yeah. girl wearing a dress, like as committed kid. committed no real offense. Um But then, yeah. you know, you in 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 a yeah. way, you were you were wearing outfits that were not like part of your culture, really, like not part of have,
0: mainstream culture. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, yeah. do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I was first designing the experiment, the first thing that popped into mind uh, when I looked at modest fashion was uh, like Indian women and Muslim women who dress modestly overseas, and they look stunning. They've got like the the beaded shellwork kameez, and they they just look great. But for me to wear um, Indian clothing or Middle Eastern clothing as part of my modesty experiment would be cultural appropriation and it would be me putting on the costume of another culture. So it would be me being visible for a different reason. And also like how offensive would it be for, for a white girl to walk around talking about, you know, Oh, I'm, I'm resisting being judged for my appearance, wearing something that makes her <laughs> stick out. That's kind of offensive. Um, so when I designed the experiment, rather than wearing a hijab, Rather than wearing a wig, rather than going after one particular or using the, the modesty um, uh, traditions of one particular religious uh, tradition, I asked myself, okay, well, what are the elements of my beauty suit that are so that I am so unwilling to let go of? And they were um, my hairstyle, my makeup, and my ability to wear tight clothes. Um, so I in an effort to avoid cultural appropriation, I made up my own, Rules And I borrowed from all three traditions um, that said cultural appropriation is really, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, when you have the backlash, like for that, that, that girl in the, was she Midwestern? Did you see she was in the Midwestern? Yeah. She was like it was, yeah, America
1: somewhere. Yeah, she was like in Ohio or something,
0: you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. So for, in that case, it's, it's fun to jump on people for cultural appropriation because it makes us feel safer it makes us feel like, well, I'm not doing cultural appropriation, but you are, and you should shut up and go away. But there's also an element of misogyny there. I can't remember the last time a man got accused of cultural appropriation. It's almost always around beauty practices. That said, um, appropriators uh, are gener- usually tend to be white, and they are usually appropriating black culture. Um, Kylie Jenner, the whole, again, and I, I hate to lean on the Kardashians so much, but there's so, there, there's so much to, to investigate there. The whole big butt phenomenon. It's not cool when black girls have big butts, but when white girls have big butts, then suddenly it's hot and it's changed the way women go to the gym. It's changed the body ideal. Whereas when dark skinned women have been looking like that for, you know, the 400 years since we dragged them over here, they were fat but if you're white, you're not fat, you're curvy, you're thick. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's as a white person, it feels fun and edgy to engage in cultural appropriation. Um, But we really, really, really need to stay in our own lane as much as we possibly can. Because when I was wearing dreads as a white girl, Um, nobody asked me to touch my hair. Um, which was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, People asked to touch my husband's hair all the time. I was at a wedding in Ireland a couple months ago and I turned around and some white woman had her hands in his hair. Oh my God. (laughs) I was like, what are you doing? Nobody ever touched me as a white girl with dreads. Mm -hmm. So, which tells you that it is racial in nature. Um, obviously, um, So I think that white folks need to be really careful about if I is this working for me? Do I look edgy because I'm appropriating black folks culture um, and I have the choice to put it down? Um, And if a person of color says you are appropriating black culture, put it down. Don't do it. Don't fight with them. Don't say, well, I'm not really appropriating. Just stop. Mm-hmm. It, white folks don't need dreads. We don't need to appropriate. It's a fun thing for us to do. So putting it down doesn't cost us that much. So we we, we generally, we, we need a lot of, unfortunately, we, we, we need a lot of correction around it. But it's also our responsibility to know and be honest with ourselves. Okay, am I appropriating? Yes. I need to stop, like right now.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so I'll, I had a previous conversation with a, a fashion journalist whose name is unfortunately escaping me right now, um, uh-huh. who, uh, wrote an article, she writes for Refinery29 and she wrote an article about Ooh. how she was, um, was in the cultural appropriation call out game for a decade and then got sick of it basically. Uh, so yeah. I'll, I'll link to yep. that conversation. below. Yeah, that'd be great. Or It's, it's yeah. mainly about fashion. Um, okay. So here's, here's another question. So I'm holding the back of the book up right now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so this contains the things that one usually might expect, you know, blur a summary of the book and some quotes from uh-huh. other people lauding the book and the, uh, you know, the barcode, uh-huh. uh, but it does yeah. not contain an author photo. And, yes. and this book is all about your appearance and women's appearance. Was this intentional? Yes. Did you did you consider putting an author photo on?
0: You know, to be honest, my my publisher never gave me the option. Really, um, yes, which to me tells me that they understand what I'm trying to do <laughs> um there is an author photo you can look me up on Google. I have an official author photo, and it's super cute and it's in black and white, and I've got that I'm looking up you know as you're supposed to be doing, but yeah, my my publisher didn't ask me, do you want a photo on the back on the cover and I was like, great um no.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting, and I um it's 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 like I mean, there's something totally weird about author photos because truly, when you're reading a book, the physical appearance of the author matters very, very little. Maybe in some small cases. In theory, uh, yeah. If 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 it's a novel, I can't see how it could possibly matter whether what the author looks like, and yet it's it's usually there. You turn over a book and you look at it, and then somehow you
0: do. You do. You want to know what this person looks like? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah,
1: I yeah. know. Maybe someone has written like a dissertation on this and trying to figure out exactly why why we're oh, why so. we want to know what the person looks yeah. like who is who they wrote wrote this book. I, I don't. I don't understand cool. it. Um, okay, yeah. so at, so at the end of the book, you give some some advice um, to women, but I was wondering if you had any advice for men about how to if a, if a man wanted to think more critically about these ideas. Um What would you advise him to do?
0: yeah, i um for men um, i would I would ask that um, you notice how often you are fed images of strong women as being sexy. Um, notice how often that is exploited for money to get you to buy things. Um, and I know that that our culture tells you that it's you you are within your rights to um, publicly shame us if we weigh too much if we're wearing too much makeup if we're wearing not enough makeup if our hair color doesn't look natural I would ask you to just shut up <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry it's just it, it you know it, it hurts us it it is damaging to not only to the woman that you direct it to but for every woman who hears it and sees it um, and you know it's not it's not crucial to your existence that you vocalize your judgments of us. You know, y'all got lots of cool stuff to do. You don't need to be <laughs> saying that stuff. You do. We, mm-hmm. we, we all do, but y'all have better ways to spend your time. Just resist the urge to publicly shame a woman or even, yeah, just to publicly shame a woman based on her appearance. Um, and, and remember that you're being manipulated into doing that. You're being encouraged to grade us you know, based on how we look. And that just has to do with getting you to buy more stuff and getting you to feel powerful so that you spend money.
1: Mm -hmm. So. Um, yeah, I, I wonder, I mean, we're kind of, we're obviously in a cultural change right now that we'll have to see whether it's like a major cultural change or a minor one related to me too and sexual harassment and sexual assault and men and women in the workplace and stuff like that. So I, this seems like it could be part of it. Um, of just I think so. yeah, men trying to judge women less on their appearance and certainly not um, well, screaming at them on the street about uh, the way they look.
0: Yes, please don't. Oh, <laughs>
1: um, well, there was one question that I probably should have been in the middle of this <laughs> my discussion, okay. but I want okay. to ask you. So, you first published an article about this in Salon a few years ago, just about uh, the experiment that you did in modesty. Um, what was the reaction to that article like?
0: Oh, it was a nightmare. <laughs> it was a nightmare. I was expecting two or three people to say so I, I summarized the modesty experiment. That's all I did. Um I ex- I was expecting two or three people to say, good for you, you've uh, you've worked on a personal issue of yours. And instead, what I got was Jezebel ripping me apart. Um, you know, she this experiment misses the point. She's still objectifying herself. I got Um, I got hate mail from, uh, men and women, um, basically making fun of me for using my appearance to free myself from my attachment to my appearance, to which I was like, I don't know. All I have is me to experiment with. That's all (laughs) I've got. I can't make other people. And it was just, I got, I got interview requests from Good Morning America, from the Today Show, Um, like it created this huge firestorm, um, which not only was I not prepared for, but I didn't want. Um, and, but it, it really, it took me a good two years to kind of emotionally recover from being hated by hundreds of strangers (laughs) suddenly Mm -hmm. for just for saying that I did something different with my life. Um, but when I, when I sort of recovered, I realized that all of that vitriol and all of that backlash and all of that interest really proved my point about the power of the beauty suit. If women are so liberated, if we really can wear whatever we want, no one should have cared about what I did. Nobody should have cared. And instead, feminists in particular gave me a gigantic, like cultural slap across the face. You are not allowed to do this, which told me Okay, so the beauty suit is just as oppressive as forcing women to cover. It's just as oppressive because I am being culturally punished by my peers for not, for speaking out against the beauty suit. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that's what it was like for me. It was kind of traumatic. <laughs> yeah,
1: wow. Um, but I mean, that must have fueled your, both the interest of a publisher and your interest in, you know, do, doing, a, turning this into a full, full book.
0: It did. It did. It's also why it took me so freaking long to write it because <laughs> I was afraid of the backlash. I was, mm-hmm. I'm a very sensitive person. I'm, I'm an academic and I'm a, you know, and I'm a pastor. and I'm, I'm very, very sensitive. <laughs> so it was very hard, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, when it, uh, when publisher, you know, when, when the article came out, people were approaching me going, are you writing a book about this? And I was like, uh-huh. Yep. I sure am. <laughs> yeah. What do you want me to, you know, <laughs> like what do I need to do to get this published? So. Which is not to say that I did the experiment to write a book. I wrote a book because I thought that this stuff needed to be said. Um, and, and the backlash, like you said, it, it bolstered my idea that, okay, this apparently does really need to be said. This does apparently need to be talked about. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Um, so you're, you are a pastor now. Um, how mm-hmm. do you approach the beauty suit dilemma in your, in, in that role?
0: Um, how do I approach what dilemma? I'm sorry, you broke up first. Uh
1: the you know, the dilemma that women face, the uh the beauty suit dilemma.
0: Oh, so um I am currently I'm between churches, um, but uh there is no pastoral job that I go into without saying, I wrote a book about feminism and the beauty suit, and uh this is I, I'm a capital F feminist, so you need to be ready for that. I'm gonna talk about it from the pulpit. Um, I am not going to tolerate um, baby boomer congregants saying things like, well, you sure are more fun to watch preach than most of the other pastors I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. I've heard that so many times. I can't even tell you. Um, So I approach um, there are actually, there are a lot of women clergy in progressive churches. There are a lot of women clergy. Um, More than half of seminary graduates are women. Um, So I'm, there's not, there's not pushback against my being a leader in the church that I've heard. Maybe evangelicals don't like it, but I've never led an evangelical church, so I don't hear it. Um, the pushback that I experience is more subtle sexism. Um, people uh, being talked over in meetings. Um, I have pastor friends whose congregants tell them to wear more or less makeup. Um, the next time I take on a church... Uh, or the next time take on a church makes me sound like I'm, I'm out there wrestling people. Um, (laughs) Next time I accept a a pastoral position, um, I am going to start off by, I'm going to have, I'm going to speak to the entire congregation and say, okay, here are some of the things that I have heard as a, as a female pastor, wear more makeup. I like the way you look when you wear Um, your skirt is too short. Um, What does your husband think? These are the things that I've heard from congregants. These are sexist things for me to hear. If you say them to me, I will very kindly but very immediately call you out and please don 't take it personally, but this is just what 's going to happen mm-hmm. um, so that's that 's how i how i how I approach it and how I plan on approaching it in the future um, fr- Fragility is something that is very often weaponized against me as a female pastor, um, not my fragility other people 's fragility they they don 't like it when i don 't pay attention to them they don 't like it when um, I don't want to talk about my husband with them. Um, so I, I handle it as best I can, and I'm very upfront about the fact that I, I will not and do not take any BS um, just because I'm a, I'm a woman in a position of, of leadership, mm-hmm. which isn't to say it doesn't come towards me. It, it comes at me all the time. It's probably never going to stop in my lifetime, but I will continue to call it out.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, we've gone slightly over an hour. Um, maybe we should wrap it up. Do you have anything else you'd like to say before we end?
0: Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that was, uh, I, I said all of, all of the things.
1: <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so here again is the book cover, um, The Beauty Suit, How My Year of Religious Modesty Made Me a Better Feminist. Uh, Lauren Shields, thank you so much for coming on. Um, li- a link to the book will be below. Um, I assume you're on Twitter somewhere?
0: I am. I am. At uh, underscore modesty exp.
1: Okay, interesting. Um, so, and a link to your Twitter will be below and anything else uh, mentioned in this episode. So, um, so Lauren, thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you to all our listeners and viewers out there. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Thank you, Aria. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.